Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, BC Builds. The province announces a new agency to build middle-income housing on public land. Will it work? And chaos at Richmond City Hall as the city considers a supervised consumption site. We speak to both sides of the issue. And Chilliwack's airport runway extension comes up $5 million short. Why? The contractor forgot to include the actual cost of construction with the original estimate. You can't make this stuff up. Mayor Ken Popov joins us. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. The BC government says the private sector can't solve the province's housing crisis as Victoria Today launched an almost $3 billion public housing program to build more affordable rental units for middle-income earners. At that announcement was Premier David Eby where he spoke about the challenges for people to get into the market. Take a listen. We know that the private sector alone has not been able to deliver the middle-income housing that we need. And that's why I'm so proud to announce that today we are launching BC Builds, which is our initiative to leverage publicly owned land, affordable financing, key partnerships uh, with the nonprofit sector and with local governments to build lower cost, middle income rental homes faster for British Columbians right across the province. So what's this all mean? Well, joining me now is BC's Minister of Housing, Ravi Kalon. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, so thanks for having me. How will this program work? Well, uh, this program uh, takes into effect that uh, when we have public lands uh, used for housing, we have public financing, uh, we expedite permits from local governments, and we take out profits, that we're able to build housing that is more affordable for middle-income earners. We know from uh, continuous conversations with local governments, people in our communities are telling us, that you've got people who are nurses, uh, teachers, healthcare workers who can't afford to live in our communities. And so this program that we're launching is a reflection of the need for government to step into this space and help build uh, that type of affordable housing. So in this case, it's public land, though. So you're taking away the cost of the build, or at least reducing significant, the significant portion of, of, of the cost to housing. That's correct. And so we've got uh, at least 20 projects that we've identified in this early stage. Uh, we've got First Nation land. We've got uh, lands owned by the province, local government, federal government. Uh, and in, in, in some cases, in fact, some places of worship. We've got churches coming forward and saying we've got underutilized land uh, and we want to make sure this housing is, uh, can be built on this space. Uh, and between that and the financing and really taking out the profit margin, uh, we're able to get housing that meets at least 30% of people's incomes because we have too many people that are paying 50% or more, and that's just not sustainable. And so in regards to these types of homes, what kind of incomes or earnings do people have to have to be eligible for this type of housing? Well, historically, D.C. housing in the province has focused on building housing for people that make less than $84,000 a year. Uh, so we have community housing funds, we have indigenous housing funds, uh, and that's been the space that we've primarily focused on. What B.C. Builds does is it builds housing for that eighty-five to up to 150000 for families. Uh, and so we're basically moving into a space that will have housing options available for people that are within our workforce. And, and we heard that today, North Vancouver is one of the first projects. They're having a tough time attracting healthcare workers at Lionsgate. Uh, and so they see these 190 units as an opportunity not only to attract healthcare workers so they can be closer to their employment, but also to support 
the port and all of the activity that happens there. So uh, again, this this will vary in communities slightly, but the premise of the program is the same. It's the government believes, we believe, that we need to step into the space to provide that affordable housing. Uh, yesterday we had SFU professor Andy Yan on the show, and one of the things he talked about uh, we were talking about the broader costs of, of uh, or broader conversation around uh, the foreign buyers ban federally, but he says one of the things we need to look at is what other markets are doing for housing because that foreign buyers ban on its own doesn't mean it, it makes housing more affordable. And one of the things he said was look at areas like Singapore as an example of what that government does for housing. How much of what you're trying to do here is is impacted by countries or city-states like uh, Singapore or others where the government is much more involved in the housing market? Well, BC Builds is actually designed on the premise of what is done in Singapore, or what is done in Vienna. In fact, what's also done in Delhi, in, in India, where the government partners with not-for-profit, partners with the private sector also. I mean, the reality is the government's not going to build these units. Uh, we don't have people with trade skills sitting around waiting to have a contract. We're going to go to the private sector, have them build it, but it's going to stay in government hands. It's going to be run by not-for-profits. And, and this has been a successful model for many jurisdictions who've already dealt with their housing challenges. Uh, and we're just saying, let's learn from them and bring those models here to British Columbia. We're the first in North America to do it, but I can guarantee you we will not be the last. Uh, does that mean you've lost faith in the private sector? Though I know you talked about the importance of the private sector, but for the government to be this involved, it, what it says is that you don't have complete faith in the private sector or perhaps even the public sector gets some of these projects approved, and that, I mean, by City Hall. And this is one sort of end run around municipalities, the public sector, and to a certain degree, the private sector, which, of course, is going to be much more profit-focused. Is this a way to get around the present system in your mind, then? Well, there's no doubt we need the private sector to continue to do what it's doing. It's building housing for a certain market that we're not going to be providing housing for. Well, what this is, is a reflection that governments need to do more. Uh, we need the private sector to continue to build. Many of the pieces of legislation that we brought in last fall were about cutting red tape so we can get housing built and approved faster in communities, and predominantly that is in support of private sector development. What we're doing here is we're saying there's that uh, population, uh, target population that cannot afford some of the market rents of our new builds. And we're saying we'll partner with the private sector to get housing that's more affordable. So it's not a one or, or another jazz. I often get people say to me, how are we going to solve this housing crisis? Is it going to be the not-for-profit sector or is it going to be the private sector? And I always say that's a luxury that we do not have. That debate is a luxury we, we do not have. We need the private sector to continue to go full speed ahead and we need the not-for-profit sector to dramatically grow in BC. Uh, since I got you here, uh, you made the, the housing announcement, the uh, housing legislation introduced uh, last fall session. Spring session begins next week. Uh, can you walk me through where we are right now in regards to just uh, your consultation with municipalities and regulations that are going to be moving forward? Because what you introduced in the fall is far-reaching, but you also have to consult with municipalities, educate them on where you want to go and whether or not they can implement some of this. Where are we in regards to that conversation right now? Well, Jess, I literally just walked out of UBCM conference where we had mayors and councillors from around the province talking about this very thing. And we've been uh, having town halls weekly for the last two months with CEOs and planners from communities throughout BC to help guide them on how to make these changes. 
Uh, June is a deadline for many of the communities to have the uh, changes reflected within their zoning rules. I'm confident that we're going to see communities, in fact, get there in April, uh, and many communities, and many uh, will take maybe May. Uh, but we will get there because, in the end, those changes are critically important to ensure that we're able to get to yes uh, to housing in a much quicker way. Minister, as always, thank you so much for your time. I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. Thanks uh, for uh, making time for our audience. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Jazz. Thanks for having me and be safe. Let's talk a little bit about financial planning and couples. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this very important issue is Peter Shashecki, a registered financial planner and president of the Everything Financial Group. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. The weather is beautiful outside, from what I can tell from the window. It looks great. It's gorgeous, but we got that special day tomorrow, so I thought, well, we better talk about couples. You know, it's Mm-hmm. I'm such a cynic, though, because, you know, I hate the word RSP season. It's an, it's an artificial created time of year to make us spend more money on RSPs created by the banks. Well, tomorrow's one of those holidays that's created to make us spend more money on flowers. That's right. Maybe you should just buy your significant other flowers because it's Wednesday, not because it's three times more money than normal on Valentine's Day. Exactly. Those are those hallmark holidays, that's for sure. Well, let's talk about one thing that's very important in this, and I'm glad we're doing this segment. It's just financial planning, which we talk about every week, but especially when it comes to couples. Walk me through sort of what kind of things you should be looking at uh, when you start a relationship and you're serious about, you know, moving forward together. What kind of things financially should you be talking about? Well, let's talk about the first when you start the relationship at the beginning. Now, this is for couples who there's definitely a large inequity in the finances, the assets, the equity they may have bringing, coming into that relationship. Mm-hmm. They should consider a cohabitation agreement. Probably a touchy subject if, you know, you ask this person you're about to spend hopefully the rest of your life with. But um, as we say, it's a lot easier to plan for the divorce when you're getting along. So that's really what, (laughs) if you talk to lawyers, what a cohabitation agreement is. It's laying all all out there so that everything is planned, simple, when you get along. Now, if you're both starting out and together in this relationship and and really you each have about the same amount of things and they're really quite equal, I mean, I've talked to a lot of lawyers about this. Well, there's, there's less need for a cohabitation agreement. But sometimes someone may come from a you know, past relationship or they had an amazing job. Who knows? But they have definitely a lot more. So the way it was explained to me when I talked to one of the lawyers who actually advertises on your station, it was, it's simple that kind of it, it sets a starting block. So everything from before this point, is that person's, but everything that grows from this point forward is shared. And that's really what a cohabitation agreement is. So if you want to protect some of your assets or just want things to be fair down the road, then start off the relationship, a great topic, with a cohabitation agreement. And you might want to bring flowers to whoever if you suggest that. A guy or girl, whoever, bring something because it might be the only thing that saves you when you bring it up as a topic. Yeah, it's not an easy conversation, that's for sure. It is not. Uh, now, let's talk about, uh, you know, further into that relationship. Uh, you know, a lot of times we hear a lot about uh, spousal RRSPs. Walk me through that. What, what, what are they and how do they work? Yeah, spousal RSP is actually because things are going well in that relationship and you want to create e- create equal equity. So you may have one person in the relationship may have a lot of RSPs or maybe they have a really good pension. So that's your retirement money, 
But the other person, but and, and say you're the high income earner, you need a good tax write-off. So you need to buy RSPs, but the other person in the relationship doesn't really have as much for retirement planning. So you can buy a spousal RSP. So you get the tax deduction, but the other person gets the money. And this way, when you go to spend that money later on, that person who has a spousal RSP, when they go to spend it later on, it's going to be taxed under their name, even though you as the contributor, and that's what you're called, mm-hmm. the contributor got the tax deduction. So this is a lot of things with couples do when one might be home half the time watching kids, raising kids, etc. so they don't have as much retirement planning. So a spousal RSP is a great way to get the write-off, but equal out the payments for later on. Now, there's one thing to consider with a spousal RSP, the person who got the money, who they didn't get the tax deduction, but they got the money, can't spend that money within three years of a contribution or else it gets taxed to the person who contributed the money. So your tax saving is all gone by the wayside if you don't manage it properly. So it's worth a discussion uh, with your registered financial planner when you're setting up your accounts. Again, just to keep the accounts equal. doesn't affect the tax deduction, mm-hmm. just helps you way down the road when it comes time to spend it. We've got about a minute left. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the importance of a beneficiary. Beneficiaries on RSPs, RIFs, anything registered, TFSAs is very important because then your money avoids probate and goes directly to your beneficiary, your sp- well, if that's your spouse, without tax either. So an RSP stays tax deferred and God forbid you pass away, it passes to your spouse and now becomes their RSP and the only tax is of course once they start to spend it. So two purposes, moves over with the same tax treatment but the money also avoids probate. With your kids, say you're the only spouse left, it still avoids probate. Now, they are going to have to claim that money on tax because kids don't receive it tax deferred, but always a beneficiary on registered accounts to avoid probate. One less fee you have to pay. Peter, thank you. Thanks, Jazz. Have a great day. Those are chants and yelling that you're hearing from a Richmond council meeting uh, last night. Now, generally in quiet, leafy suburban Richmond, uh, council meetings are, are, are much more professional and you don't hear that kind of emotion. Uh, but in this case, council was looking at a proposed supervised consumption site uh, and many residents uh, showed up to voice their concerns. Uh, many people on other sides of the conversation, or both sides of the com- conversation. And this was actually just a gauge the potential benefits and challenges of implementing a drug consumption site. Things got very heated yesterday. Here's Mayor Malcolm Brody speaking to the crowd as he tried to get some sort of order in council chambers. Hey, excuse me. Excuse me. There aren't going to be any demonstrations here. There's only one way you're going to give your input to this city council, and that is to get your name on the list and you come down to this seat and you tell us what's on your mind. Okay? If you want to be part of this discussion and part of this decision, then you will respect the process. This is not some kind of a theater or a carnival. This is a very solemn occasion where we are making important discussions and decisions for the city. 
And I can tell you that I've been doing this since the mid-90s, and that is the first time I've had that kind of a reaction here in the city council. It is not going to happen. Is there anybody who doesn't understand that? That was Mayor Malcolm Brody last night. Uh, his worship joins us now. Malcolm, thank you for, for your time today. Uh, good afternoon, Jazz. Uh, first time I've heard that uh, repeated, frankly. What, what's going through your mind when you hear that? Because I know you as somebody who's very chooses his care, words very carefully, not that you didn't yesterday, but boy, there was a lot of emotion there. Well, it was a situation where um, there was active uh, cheerleading and chanting going on at the beginning of the city council meeting. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a large group out in the plaza before that who were engaging in that kind of activity, and then they brought it into the council chambers. Um, It was a situation that had it persisted, uh, obviously, it would have uh, had a dramatic effect negatively on, uh, you know, on, on the council proceedings. And, and so if we wanted to get anywhere, we had to uh, address this head on. Mm-hmm. Um, why does your community, uh, in, in the case of your council, sorry, it was an 8-1 vote that want to look at the idea or a potential for a consumption site. Why do, did council vote that way in your mind? What what, what would the what got you to that point to say, let's look at this potential consumption site? Well, the short answer is it was a motion brought on by two of the councillors. Uh, that's the short answer. But the wider answer is um, we, we have experienced increasing numbers of deaths in Richmond in, you know, 10 years ago or so. You know, there were three deaths. Uh, from overdoses in Richmond, so a far smaller problem, and it's it's grown over the years to uh, 26 was 2023. Um, so I think the answer to why it's being brought up right now is because of the deaths. People have died. I mean, uh, you know, it's these are people. Uh, these aren't statistics. These are people, all of whom have had a tragic loss of life. And, of course, many others have suffered in other ways as well. And uh, so it's an examination as to whether we can speak to Vancouver Coastal Health and talk about solutions uh, for the long run. Can we help the people who are in desperate need of assistance in some way? Mm -hmm. Is this conversation a new one for Richmond and perhaps many other suburbs? Some have argued that we spend so much time talking about consumption sites uh, and even uh, housing uh, for homeless, and it's usually a Vancouver conversation or perhaps even a Surrey conversation. But other suburbs like Richmond, perhaps Burnaby, the North Shore, need to take um, greater responsibility uh, and some of the resources need for those communities need to be have to spend some of their own money to deal with some of these issues as well. That this has predominantly been a Vancouver and Surrey issue, not a, a Richmond issue or a North Shore issue. Do you think some of that is now coming home? Well, I think the problem hasn't gotten any less over the years. And I mean, there is an irony that along with the modular housing, we have two sites here in Richmond on Alderbridge and Astor Place. There are small, safe consumption sites in each of those locations. 
Vancouver Coastal Health introduced those. They didn't ask any permission to do it. They have the authority to do it, I presume. And they just went ahead and did it. So when you talk about a safe consumption site for uh, people other than the immediate residents, uh, you know, it becomes uh, more of a wider concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact is, it's there is precedent for it in the city of Richmond. It's just kind of the context that drives a lot of the opinions. Do you think the hospital is the right location for it in your mind? Well, again, I'm not trying to presume what the vote is going to be, and I don't want to you know, presume anything other than trying to keep an, as open a mind as we can, uh, as I can. And I think all of the councillors are in the same boat. Uh, let's not predetermine what the outcome is going to be. We'll see at the end of the day. But in terms of, of a location, uh, I believe that uh, if the matter was... Uh, to come to fruition, and years from now, Vancouver Coastal Health uh, opens a safe consumption site. Yes, I think that the hospital would, you know, has proven to be a site where all kinds of medical and medical-related situations are taking place uh, with little or no controversy or fanfare. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of emotions last night with uh, you and your counselors uh, dealt with. Uh, do you think uh, you can come to a, a sort of a mutual agreement somewhere along the way where you can find a solution that works for everybody? Because it is so polarized, uh, this conversation. Uh, and as you said, 26 people in Richmond have died. Some have said, look, in, in the tox- toxic drugs have killed 2,500 people uh, last year in B.C., only 26 people died in Richmond. That's the conversation I've heard from some people, not everybody, a small minority, but 26 out of 2,500, they would argue, is not a lot. A lot of this is happening behind closed doors as well. How do you bring your community together when this conversation seems so polarized, certainly by last night's standards? We've been through this before. Uh, you may remember the controversy over the Turning Point mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. drug and alcohol uh, uh, treatment center in a residential neighborhood on Odlin Road. Um, and uh, after an extensive process, uh, it went forward. And uh, ultimately, the people who are most against it, uh, I spoke to them, you know, a year or two later, and they found that it was no problem at all. I'm not saying that that this will end up at the same place where anyone's going to admit that it's no problem at all when they have strong feelings against it. But, uh, you know, time heals a lot and discussion and looking at the ramifications and understanding what it entails is going to go to a, going to go a long way uh, to placate uh, the fears of those who are most uh, against it. And also, uh, those who are in favor of it have to be understanding and they may not have every uh, concept that they desire in it either. Well, Malcolm, uh, lots said last uh, night. I know you're uh, going back to council tonight to hear more people uh, speak. Appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Yes, anytime, Jazz. Thank you. Often uh, when I take calls from all of you out there, you hear uh, one core theme, which is, you know, private sector always does it a bit better than the public sector. It's more efficient. 
Uh, they know how to make money. They don't know how to. They know what they're doing. Government, government. Uh, well, it costs money. They don't do big projects well. Well, recently, uh, Chilliwack City Council wanted to um, extend their runway at the Chilliwack Airport. Uh, they put out a request for a proposal, an RFP, uh, and they got an estimate from one private sector uh, group, uh, and the estimate was five million dollars. Well, guess what? Uh, there was a problem. <laughs> The estimate wasn't right. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the $5 million extension for the Chilliwack Airport runway is Ken Popov, uh, the mayor of Chilliwack. Ken, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. It's nice to be on your show. I've done this a few times. Absolutely. I guess the first question is, what the heck happened? Oh, man. Yeah, uh, we're still stinging from this one here. Um, You know, the city's not in the business of building runways. That's, That's not our job. You know, we rely on, you know, professionals to give us recommendations. So the current uh, um, management team at the airport, they hired S&C Lavalin to, to do the study and estimate what it's going to cost us to, to add 500 yards to both ends of the airport. Well, um, it didn't include all necessary costs like preloading, uh, labor, drainage, like they were $5 million out. Like, how do you do that? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's disappointing. Um, you know, with Red Bull coming to town, we won't see a Red Bull jet for a little while, which I was really looking forward to. I know that's kind of, you know, left side, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not all bad news. Um, we were able to pivot the money that we got from the province and, and, and do a major upgrading of our lighting system to the runway. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's fairly old and antiquated. We can't get parts for the old uh, systems. So I, you know, like an upgrade is going to happen and then it'll, it'll uh, um, be built in such a way that when we do get more of the grant funding, we, we're going to add more lighting on either side of the runway to, to uh, install more lighting to make it what we, you know, really intended it for it to be is, is a longer runway. So, so, so yeah, uh, when they responded, I mean, when they when they provided their estimate uh, in that report, it didn't say there uh, we've excluded preloading and all these other elements that you're talking about here that are certainly would be you know no. important. They did they never no. never did that. No, and we based our our grant ask from the province based on that you know cost estimate. <laughs> they they pooped the bed on this one, that's for sure. So. Um, we're going to have to, uh, you know, go back to the drawing board. Like I said, we, we are going to upgrade the lighting, but as far as the extension goes, that's now going to be put on hold until such time as we can get some more grant money to to do what we wanted to do. But, uh, yeah, it's a big gaffe. Uh, yeah. um, like it wasn't a city gaffe. Um, we did hire another um, consultant to just, you know, this was done in – $2,022, we wanted to just see in $2,023 where we were at, and that's where it all came to light that, um, whoops, we forgot to uh, add labor. So yeah. so just to confirm, uh, usually there's an RFP request for a proposal uh, where you, the city or, the, in this, this case, the airport would probably put out a, a request saying, we're looking for... Yep. Uh, a runway, and these are the things that should be included. Yeah, as you say, labor, uh, all those kinds of things that one would expect are pretty obvious. 
SNC says, we'll do it for this much, and turns out they didn't actually include some of that stuff. <laughs> it's, just... it's mind-boggling, it's, it's mind Joseph. You know, I, I, you know, I can understand maybe a, like a million bucks, you know, cost overrun, but five million? That's a considerable chunk of change. So we will carry on. We will still be harping with the province and, and the federal government and see if we can make this happen. But at this point now, this whole project, besides the lighting, is not put on hold. Wow. Uh, I'm just curious, what was your reaction when, when, it, when, you, when it first dawned on you, when you saw that these guys had just messed up that bad? Well, I'm, you know, I read the staff report, uh, you know, coming up to our next staff meeting last week, and, and I'm going, huh? No, I can't be right. You know, I was in disbelief, to be honest with you, because, like I said, it could have been a, you know, like a million dollar whoops. But um, so it came to council, and, and it was explained to us exactly what happened, and, and um, SNC Leveland got big-time egg on their face right now, and... and uh, we will never use them in Chilliwack for as long as I'm here. It's just, uh, that just wasn't done properly. It makes us look bad. It makes the management of the airport look bad because they were doing the right thing and getting the proper quotation so we can go after grant money yeah. and, and I can do our part. But holy cow, what a difference in, in you know, like in costing. So yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's disappointing. Uh, it is. Say no, the least. I haven't been to the airport in, in a while yet, but they still got those amazing pies out there. Oh yeah, buddy! Next time you're in town, give me a call and I'll join you there for a coffee or lunch. They Absolutely. are amazing. I I remember buying them some extra and taking them with me to home. They were they're just that good. So well, I'm glad the pies are still there. I'm sorry you weren't able to get a, a an extension on the runway, but fingers crossed next time the estimates come in closer to what you need. I, I hope so too, but I appreciate the call. Thank you. Right Take on. care. Bye bye. Welcome back to the show. What you're hearing there are hundreds of people who are gathered outside and inside uh, at Richmond City Hall Monday night to speak uh, against and for a motion to consider a supervised drug consumption site. Tensions did run high uh, when the City Council started the hearing. Uh, there's about 120 people who want to speak uh, officially to um, the uh, proposal, which is, of course, looking at a potential supervised drug consumption site at Richmond Hospital. More will be speaking uh, tonight. We spoke to Mayor Malcolm Brody earlier in the show today in regards to what transpired uh, and the issue of a safe consumption site potentially at Richmond Hospital grounds. Take a listen. The answer to why it's being brought up right now is because of the deaths. People have died. I mean, uh, these aren't statistics. These are people, all of whom have had a tragic loss of life. And of course, many others have suffered in other ways as well. And uh, so it's an examination as to whether we can speak to Vancouver Coastal Health and talk about solutions uh, for the long run. Can we help the people who are in desperate need of assistance in some way? That was Richmond Mayor Malcolm Brody speaking to us at 4 o'clock. Joining me now is Sheldon Start. He is a Richmond resident. He has also expressed concerns about a potential supervised uh, site uh, at Richmond City, uh, Richmond Hospital. Joining me now, of course, is Sheldon. Sheldon, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Jazz. Uh, your concerns about a supervised uh, uh, injection site at Richmond Hospital, what are your concerns? So... 
I, I come from an, the, the area of Richmond where we uh, previously had problems with a modular home mm-hmm. uh, with residents there, and that modular home had a safe uh, consumption site in it as well. And we do know there's been some deaths in that modular home as well. But with that, there was some neighborhood opposition, but it did get passed. And over the last four years, there's been many impacts on the neighborhood. And so we are concerned that last fall when the city council, when we took it to city council, they, most of them admitted the city had not done enough to mitigate the impacts on the neighborhood. And so we feel that there is no plan for a, a larger safe consumption site at the hospital and what would be done to mitigate similar impacts uh, on the city center areas of Richmond. Hmm. And it, is there anything you think the city could do to mitigate your concerns and other residents' concerns uh, in regards to uh, a safe consumption site, or do you think there's just no way it should be in Richmond? Well, I, I'm not the only one that doesn't think it should be in Richmond. Even Vancouver Coastal Health Authority thought it shouldn't be in Richmond. The, I believe the chief medical officer for Richmond, Dr. Dalar, mm-hmm. had said that the level of death is low in Richmond, and so it's not a top priority for the, the Coastal Health Authority, that they need to put resources where they're more needed. Um, and many residents in Richmond are against it just because of what they've seen in Vancouver um, and I, I think a lot of residents would rather focus more on treatment. Uh, and, and just to confirm here, uh, in British Columbia in 2023, 2,511 British Columbians uh, died uh, because of the toxic drugs uh, in our province. Uh, and 26 people, uh, 26 of those deaths um, were in Richmond. Which, uh, Sheldon, what do you say to the argument that looks so much of our conversation when it comes to uh, safe injection sites, even mental health and addiction, uh, homelessness and, and housing, it always focuses around Vancouver and potentially Surrey, both communities with well over 1.2 million people collectively, about half of the lower mainland's population. But we do not have enough resources in some of our suburbs, Richmond being one, Burnaby, uh, Port Moody, the North Shore, Coquitlam. A lot of these suburban communities need to be able to you know, do their fair share uh, to deal with these issues. We concentrate too many of our issues and our problems in one or two communities and the other suburban areas prefer that not come to their neighbourhood. What do you say to that argument that we need to do a better job to spread out some of these resources that are available to people throughout Metro Vancouver? Well, well, first of all, I do agree with you. This is a big problem, and it's a very complex problem. Uh, There there is the homeless uh, issue. There is a um, mental health crisis, as well as the opioid drug epidemic as well. And sometimes these these overlap with each other. Sometimes all all of them are overlapping. we noticed that the concentration of deaths in the in the Richmond were concentrated in the city center around Alderbridge, mm-hmm. where that modular home is, where there is a safe consumption site, and so we just we just feel that the safe consumption site has not done its job at the modular home in Richmond, and we are just wondering why isn't there more focus on treatment? Because everyone says they need to get into these centers so then we can then get them into treatment. But then no one is ever building treatment centers, and so it always feels that last pillar is never implemented. So in your mind, let's focus more on treatment and enforcement, potentially, and, uh, we, and, and that should be our focus, not on the, not on the uh, safe injection sites. Yes, because I, there has been more safe injection sites that have opened in Vancouver, uh, 
yet more and more people keep dying from the opioid epidemic. It would seem a lot of people are not taking advantage of these services. How, how and this is something all policymakers have to think about, is how, how are we going to save those people who are not uh, availing themselves of these services? Um, you, obviously, we do need also more education and prevention. The drugs out there today are, are very toxic. They're, they, they can, if they don't kill you, they can cause severe brain damage. And even some of them are cut with chemicals that like, if you were to get a Narcan injection, a Narcan injection will not save you if they have like benzos. I, I don't know the scientific term for it, but um, I, I think we, I do think we just need to look more at education prevention, but also heavy focus on treatment and getting these people to the help. They're, we shouldn't stigmatize them. They need help. Their lives are worthy. Um, they, they, they're just in a bad place and they need help to get out of that, um, even if maybe it's involuntary as well. Mm-hmm. What do you think this means for your community in the sense that I, I'm not saying last night's events and, and emotions uh, are a microcosm of how Richmond feels, or perhaps it is, I don't know. Uh, but in regards to this conversation, do you think this is going to be continue to be polarized and heated as it was last night, or do you think perhaps there will be uh, some common ground found uh, by those on, on, on either side? Yes. Well, I, I was one of the organizers that reached out to organize this. I conducted a survey that received over 1,000 responses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did I did email that survey to you uh, earlier today, um, although it's a lot to go through. But I'm finding a lot of the people that are opposed to the consumption site are not against finding ways to help these people. Uh, one of the biggest, um, one of the bigger responses in the survey was... Um, the, the third largest response we got was for people to say we need to prioritize treatment, reha- rehabilitation, and, de- and detox. And there, there, there just is nothing, there is nothing for any of that, for that follow-through to help these people. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you, the survey that you did, how did you do your survey? I'm just curious, there's over 1,000 respondents, I think 96% uh, strongly disagreed with the establishment of a consumption site, 89% say the safe consumption site will actually worsen public safety. How did you go about your survey? Well, I just, uh, well, because of short notice, hosted it on uh, on my my domain, but we, we just asked some simple questions, and we asked um do do you if you if you strongly agree agree neutral strong uh, disagree or strongly disagree so we just ranked it asked about five questions um, just try to keep it simple straightforward mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of people felt the city had not when this motion came out no one had been consulted on it it caught everyone off guard and still people are just slowly learning about it and a lot of people feel frustrated and. Um, that that this is just being initiated without greater consultation and input from this community, um, and I mean Richmond is a diverse community, and uh, I think there's also a lot of cultural richness in this community. And there's because of the different cultures, people also may just have different values, different thoughts on this, uh, and um, I think we also do have to try to be respectful of that without also getting descending into like racism and and hatred if we disagree with each other because i saw some videos in some racist vitriol was spewed last night and uh, i i i think we can find ways to try to 
where we can find common ground and rehab and treatment. A lot of us agree that that these people need help. So how can we help them? And I'm I'm curious and, and a tough a tough. Uh question to answer but do you think if something like this was proposed in other su- suburbs uh, that, that that you'd probably get the same response whether it's the north shore whether it's coquitlam uh whether it's uh, uh langley township or port moody that generally uh, this conversation about safe consumption sites yes we discuss it in vancouver and other locations in big cities but the suburbs in metro vancouver generally will are pushing back and will push back and that i mean the citizenry will push back pretty hard against something like that generally opening? I, I, I do think that, yeah, I mean, whether this was Richmond, whether it was Tawasson, North Vancouver, Coquitlam, I, I do think that there would be people who would be looking at the downtown east side and say that despite the best intentions of these sites, uh, overdose deaths are at an all-time high, so deaths are not dropping, um, and look at the encampments, the lawlessness, the public disorder. Some of them are safe consumption sites. Some of them are overdose prevention sites. There is apparently different um, uh, definitions to those, but but you just look around these different sites, and um, I, I know like the Vancouver City of Vancouver closed down one of theirs in the Seymour, Yaletown area. I think that one was an overdose prevention site, and the Naimo had a similar situation. Um they, I think cities, if they want to go ahead with these, they need to consult and they need to actually have a plan to mitigate uh, because it seems like there is no thought through planning on any of this. And is it the health care provider that will be the, 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 the coastal health authority that will be administering it or will they contract it out to a subcontractor? And what are the rules for all these subcontractors that run and operate these these sites or modular homes? Uh, I've seen them appear at council meetings in different municipalities, and some of the administrators of these nonprofits that service provide cannot answer questions, and it seems like there is no oversight, there's no accountability. They're getting millions of dollars of taxpayers' money from the federal government, the provincial, the municipal, and it just seems like there's a lot of money being sold out, but there, uh, there, there, there doesn't seem to be any coordination or, or greater oversight. Sheldon, we've run out of time. I really appreciate your time on this issue. Look forward to chatting with you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.